Hebrews chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 1 again, and well, we'll back up to, we're going to back up to chapter 10, verse 32. Get a running start. Read down through verse 22. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, down through Hebrews 11, verse 22. If you remember the the setting of the book of Hebrews, it's written primarily to Jewish Christians, but who by the constant um, pressure around them in their very tight-knit community from the Jews, as well as the opposition of the world in general, they are being tempted to go back, to go back to Judaism and not to hope in Christ alone, not to follow his teachings. And so the writer has to encourage them by sights of Christ, picture after picture in the book of Hebrews of the superiority of Christ, and then warnings. So in chapter 10, verse 32, he talks about the need to be able to persevere. Verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and which, and pardon, and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, 
when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob... As he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Well, we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the account of men and women who were held in the grip of what is real and not merely living on what was apparent. We ask God that you would grant us help to do the same today, to have our eyes turned away from the surface things. We're grateful for the many common blessings that you give to the earth, for the common grace, the love that you have for all your creation, even with its sin-twisted and marred existence. You are good. And you are good even to those who are your enemies. But we are especially thankful this morning, on this first day of the week, for the sending of a captain, a rescuer, a defender, a king, a brother, a kinsman redeemer, who went to war for us, taking the field of battle and in humility giving his life in the place of his enemies. We thank you for showing us this in the scripture and explaining every aspect of it, whether it is in the centuries of ceremonies and laws and prophecies and songs and prayers of the Old Covenant, or whether it is in the New Testament and the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels, or in the explanation of the letters of the apostles to those young Christians. Even in the Revelation, looking up by faith, we see Him ascended, ruling, 
over all, all the worlds are his. And so we thank you, God, for the great work of redemption, for paying the payment for our crimes against your law, for bringing us near to yourself when we deserve to be banished forever, and for working in us in such an extraordinary way that every believer here this morning can say that we are no longer strangers to the promises of God. And we are not without you, but we are strangers in this world. And you have done something in us that makes us not able to fit in. And God, we don't really want to fit in with this culture's way of doing things. And so we ask that you would help us to live on the real and not the apparent. To grab hold of the things that you have revealed. That we would have the assurance of their reality. That we would have the evidence of what is yet at this point invisible. In such a way that we could live as people seeing him who is unseen. And that everyone who knows us would have to find an answer to that question. Why do they live so differently? Why are they so happy without what the things that the world thinks are essential? Forgive us, Father, when, like the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, we do stumble and drift and our feet get off the path. So we come to you this morning, God, not just thanking you for what you have done and have given, but we plead that you would seek us Seek us when we go astray. Point our feet back to the path of obedience to your commands. Give us the happiness of knowing what the prodigal son knew. The restoration of the the friendship between him and his father. The full forgiveness. We come to you this morning not just asking these things for ourselves. But God, what about the nations? What about the people that we live next to or work next to? What about the churches down the street as they preach and people there are pleading for their families and friends? God, is this all that Christ has earned? Is it optional to you that any more be brought to you? Is it optional that all the areas of our lives be brought to you? We pray that your kingdom would spread across the nations. We pray that your will would be done where in places where right now they don't even know your name. And God, we pray it would happen in every area of our souls as well. And all these things we lay before you, depending on you, looking to you, our Father. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are returning to the theme of being followers or disciples of Christ. You remember that a disciple is different in many ways than just a pupil. A pupil can show up in the classroom and sit and take notes, whatever the teacher's saying, and then go home and uh, reread those notes, you know, get it really down in the mind, come back perhaps and take a test and give the right answers. And if they do a good job at that, they get a good grade and they are a good student. But there is something added when we think of discipleship. It's much more like an apprenticeship. 
We're coming to the Son of God. The command that he gives is, follow me. And that hasn't altered since the New Testament. There are many commands, of course, believe me, follow me. But because we believe what he says, we open this book, we see his example, we hear his commands throughout the scripture, and we turn to him and we imitate him. Not in the specific tasks he did. We, we don't travel around the ancient world. We don't give ourselves and our lives on a cross for anybody. But in how he related to the Father. In how he thought about that. In how he related to other people. In how he wholeheartedly gave himself as a real man. The God man. How he devoted himself to the Father's pleasure. Depending on the Spirit. And obeying God. These are things that apply to every Christian. When we talk about being followers of Christ or imitators or discipled or apprenticed by Christ, one of the areas that we need to be clear on if we're to be on the same path he was on is the path of faith. And we talked about this last week, that Jesus Christ is the believer. If you think of faith as only affecting the beginning of the Christian life. Years ago, I believed. And that brought me into a whole new state of being. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. And you think of that kind of as a static state of being. You know, that well, that's what I am now. And you don't remember that the faith that was the first step in the journey, that repentant believing, it's also the way you make every step after the beginning. So with new life from God, we, our eyes opened to his trustworthiness. We turn from every empty lie that has so gripped our hearts and minds and, and guided our thoughts and fashioned everything about us. And now we turn to this book and to the God that gave it to us and we believe and we keep believing. And that affects the life, which is what we'll look at today. But if you only think of it at conversion, well, I believed. I got saved when I was such and such. And so I believed back then. Then when you think of Christ as a believer, it doesn't seem to make sense. He, he never needed to be saved. He never needed to turn in repentance and faith toward the Father. He never needed to be converted. So how could he be the great example of a believer? But he did believe and we looked at that last week, so we won't go back over it. You can find it on the church website. But Christ trusted what the Father gave him in this book and lived on the Father's words. If you don't understand the full humanity of Christ, the true humanity of Christ, then the idea that Christ is a believer makes it sounds strange in your ears. Isn't he the God man? He is. So as God, didn't he have some kind of invisible antenna? That he just knew all things effortlessly, always. He always knew what was coming the next moment. He, he knew everything about all of his life without, you know, effort. And so he didn't have to live trusting the Father. But that would be a misapplication. In the scriptures, we see Christ willingly laying aside the exercise of his divine attributes. And we find him... Asking questions because he needs the answer. We find him 
trusting God, the Father, even when things on the surface of life seem to contradict what the Scripture says. So that comes to, now that brings us down to us. How do we follow Christ as believers? Because if we don't understand that, if we don't see how faith acts in life, then there's no hope that we will really be discipled by Christ. But before we get into that, I want us to stop again and think of the, this idea, uh, how do we define the word faith? Faith is a word that all of us have heard so often if you've grown up in, in, in the Mid-South. But even if you didn't grow up in a religious area of the country, you probably have heard of faith. Everyone talks about faith. It doesn't have to be religious faith. It doesn't have to be Christian faith. When we think of faith and people believing something and hoping and that affecting the way they live, what do we mean when we talk about the faith that God gives? The faith that God works in the soul. The faith that the Christian, day by day, Hebrews says, that the just live by that faith. So how does that look? When we hear the word faith in a church building on Sunday, I find it is very easy to lose all real benefit from the word. And I wish that, you know, there were another word that we could come up with so that we wouldn't lose the benefit. Here's kind of how it happens in my heart. Maybe you recognize it. I come and someone says, we're going to talk about faith today. And I think to myself immediately, faith. I know a lot about faith. I know what the word means. And I know a lot of Bible verses that talk about faith. And, and I remember Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll be looking at. And so I say to myself, oh, well, I know this one. You know, this is a topic I know. And immediately my mind kind of fills with all the clutter of the religious cliches about faith and some really good Bible stuff, but it's all jumbled in. It kind of, it's like the preacher says the word faith and the door of my brain flies open and all that I've ever heard about faith, every bumper sticker and silly t-shirt that talks about faith, it all just presses right into my brain. And then my brain looks around and says, wow, you have so much knowledge about faith. And the rest of the sermon I am very passive because I think I already know it. I mean, I don't mind the preacher saying something new. Maybe he, he goes back to the Greek language and maybe he goes back to the Hebrew and he says something. Maybe he quotes an obscure passage from one of the prophets. And I think, wow, you know, I mean, I knew a lot about faith, but I didn't know that one. And that's something new. Thank you. But that would be a really dangerous way to approach it. Much better when we see that it's a topic that we have heard of before a lot, and you do have a lot of knowledge, to, to kind of set that aside for a moment and say to God quietly, teach me. I want to grab everything that we're going to look at this morning from Scripture. I want to grab it like a poor man grabs the free gifts. A starving man grabs food. I need what the scripture says about faith if I'm going to live the Christian life. It's impossible without it. So I want to be desperate and greedy, not stuffed full. 
satisfied and saying kind of quietly, well, if you have something new, uh, I'll make room for the new. So let's be very careful about what faith is. I want to give you a few things just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page with the Bible. And then we're going to turn to Hebrews 11 for some practical looks at how faith acts. Okay, so number one, what faith is. Faith is, we talked about it last week, it is the response of the heart of a human to the truthfulness of God. So ultimately, it's God that we're believing in. It's God that we're trusting. Ultimately, it's not even this book. It's the author of the book. If someone gave you this book, but the God behind the book, even though the book was full of so many true things, but the God behind the book was a fraud, then why would you believe the book? We believe the book because the God behind the book is the only one that cannot lie, who knows everything, who has revealed these things for us, and they've been put to the test for so many centuries and proven true. So faith is the response of you, your soul, to a trustworthy creator. And that's the fundamental. When we talk about our soul, we remember last week, mind, heart, and will. I read what God says, that recalibrates my thinking. I read what God says, I'm thinking differently, that recalibrates my desires. I read, I think differently, I desire differently, and that alters the path of my feet. I act differently. I choose differently. When the Bible talks about believing, with, believing God with the heart, the Hebrew idea of heart is not emotions. It is the core of you. And that included, for the Jews, your thoughts, your desires, your choices. So we come to the God that we can trust And seeing that he's trustworthy, whatever he says, the mind, the heart, and the will have to be impacted. Faith is an active grace. Okay, it's not just that it's trusting a trustworthy being. It is continually active. And we know that by the book of James, don't we? We've been reading James. Faith is dead or false or It's a sham. It's a shell of the real thing. It's no better than what the demons have because they certainly do believe a lot of facts about God. If all it does is exist in your mouth, you say, well, oh, no, I believe those things. And there's this great profession of faith or we confess together. We believe these things, but it doesn't alter the way we live. It doesn't alter the way our mind thinks and our heart treasures. James says that the demons believe about God and they tremble. And the implication is you you better have a faith that's got more than that. The demons don't think differently about God because they know he is. They don't love differently because they know he is. And they don't choose differently because they know he is. They have a dead type of faith. Faith is not an active state of being, I said earlier. In Romans chapter 5, we read these wonderful verses. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, you've received this gift of forgiveness by faith. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, by trusting God, into this grace. An introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So there's a picture of a new state of being. By faith, I cast all I am on Christ and I take all He is revealed in His Word and I risk everything on the fact that He will not lie to me. Now, I have been brought by this faith. It's like walking through the door. I have been brought into a whole new realm, a whole new atmosphere, a whole new position between God and me. My soul, my life is now living in grace. I'm surrounded by grace. I'm in a kingdom of grace. This unexpected, undeserved, unearned, unsought love of God, the friendship of the king that you don't deserve. And the Christian lives in this atmosphere. So that is a positional thing. It's a state of being. I am in Christ. I have been introduced into a kingdom of grace. But faith is not a state of being. Faith is an ongoing principle, the old writers say. Not principle, P-A-L, like the person at school, but P-L-E, principle. The old word for origin of your activity. What's the principle behind your behavior? What is the origin? What's the source of how you're living? And for the Christian, it's faith. Faith is the great shaping influence, the great motivating influence, the great fuel of the Christian, the great guide of our feet and the and the guard of our path. Not because faith in itself is so great, but because faith is the one thing God has given you by which you can grab the words off of a page of the Bible and bring them down into the daily choices and thoughts. Faith is active. It does not simply do for us to say, I am a new thing. I am a believer. It must be an ongoing activity. I am believing. I am taking the truths that God reveals on the Bible and I am finding how those fit in my marriage. I'm finding how those fit in the way I treat my brothers and sisters, my parents, my children, my coworkers, the people that sit next to me at church, the people I play ball with. Faith grabs hold of these truths and acquires them or lives on them in ways that are so practical that I think most of a Christian's life of faith, of believing and living as if God doesn't lie, I think most of that activity looks very normal to us, very common. And so you may not even recognize that it's faith. But it is faith because it's living on what he revealed. Because you believe that he doesn't just know what's real, but he never lies. Faith is active. Let me give you another thing. Faith is a response, an active response 
to what God reveals. If it is not, then it is worthless. If you have faith in an object that isn't worth trusting, then your faith is worthless. It's dangerous. If you see an old rickety bridge and you say, I just have faith that it'll hold me and my family up and you drive the car over the bridge and the bridge wasn't really worthy of your trust and the car falls through, it doesn't matter how much faith you have or how much faith everybody in the family has. If you have a little bit of faith in an object that is worthy of your trust, enough to move forward, then it is great faith. Faith is not you living on a kind of religious, hopeful feeling. We don't leave this building and say, I just think it's all going to work out eventually. So I'm, I, just, I just believe it. Well, what good is that? Everyone on the planet has moments like that, and many of them are self-deceived. Believing in something that isn't real, to me, is worse than not believing in anything. What a disappointment at the end of the life to realize, I trusted everything I have. I trusted my soul, my kids, my marriage to something that wasn't. It just wasn't. It wasn't even real. Faith must be your soul's response to what God reveals in Scripture. If you are living, trusting your hopeful feelings and your positive attitude, you will surely, surely be disappointed. So the Christian comes to the Bible and we see what God says about himself, what he says about sin, what he says about Christ, what he says about us, what he says about marriage, kids, work, church, what he says about every single thing as we're reading and he's teaching us. And we believe what he reveals. We don't live on hopeful feelings. We live on reality. But we get that from the one person who knows what's real. Remember what Romans 10 said? Verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is not just conversion. It's not just saying, look, someone needs to preach the gospel if people are going to get saved. Well, that's true. But someone's got to be presenting the word of God. You've got to be taking the word of God in, whether it's from a page or from a sermon. You're constantly taking the truths of God in and faith has something to live on, to fuel it. And you believe it and you live on it. And you're different. Faith is active. Faith is trusting a person. Faith is trusting a person according to what they revealed in the Bible. Faith is responding to what is revealed in the Bible. And let me give you just two quick other things. That means the response of faith, the life of a believer, may look different in different situations. Because you are responding to what the Bible says. So you're facing situations in your life. You've got that here. You've got an open book here. Your heart is turned toward your king. And you're asking God, how, how does belonging to you change the way I respond to this? Everybody around me 
has given me their opinion. I think you should do this. If I were you, oh, I know what I would do. And then I have my own feelings. They go up and down. What do you say, God? And you go to the scripture and God grants you, as you study this book, a clarity. This is the path that would please God. This is a path that is based on the realities that God gave us. How you respond to that depends on what God has revealed in the scripture. Sometimes people feel that if you are very religious in your activity and really kind of wholehearted in your religion, that must be faith and God must be pleased. But that is not necessarily true. I remember that not many years ago, I mean, it's a, lo- it's a while back now, so before some of you were born, that uh, it, it became popular to do Jericho walks. Raise your hand if you've heard of a Jericho walk. Okay? So a Jericho walk is, it's a nice idea. I think it's a mistaken concept. But here's the idea. Back in the Old Testament, when God conquered Jericho, he told the people to march around the city for seven days. And they were to keep quiet. You know, they just marched around. And then the city fell, of course. And then they were able to move in and take possession. And so we're going to pick out a place. We're going to pick out a city, a part of the neighborhood, maybe our church building, and we're going to walk around it and we're going to do it maybe for seven days, a little each day. And as we go around it, we're just going to pray. And then God is going to conquer the enemy in that territory, wherever we marched. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, I mean, it doesn't work. But why doesn't it work? Because God isn't real? No, because God is real. God spoke to the Jews and said, when it comes to this city, don't do what you did before. Don't get the army together. Don't line up. Don't do this. No. This city, you do this. And they responded to the word of God. If they would have gone out as an army, like they did before, it would have displeased God and they would have been destroyed. But the next city, after Jericho, God didn't say, okay, that worked great. So next city, march around seven days. We're going to do this across Canaan. Next city, it was not that. When you look at the book of Acts, sometimes we think if we just imitated what we read in the book of Acts, so you do what they did, we will be a New Testament church. But that is not the way. It's missing the point. The point of the book of Acts in many ways for us to imitate is that they responded to the living God through his word. And he worked in them. And so we have to respond to the living God through his word. But you won't necessarily do the same thing every day that the book of Acts did. The question is, what does God tell us to do in his word? How is he guiding us through this book? And will you respond to him? So... The response of faith, while there are many responses that every Christian has in common, you know, repentance, trust, love, gratitude, obedience, but how that looks in the present moment, how faith acts is different depending on what God has said in his word and how that applies to your situation. So when we read the book of uh, Hebrews and we read chapter 11, we don't read that, you know, 
We don't read that Moses and Joshua and those others wandered all their life looking for a promised land. But we read that Abraham did, and so did Isaac, and so did Jacob, and so did Joseph. It would have been wrong for Moses and the others to just wander forever, Joshua and those that followed, because God had provided a promised land. It was time to settle down. So we don't just do religious things. We respond to what God says in Scripture and how it applies to us, and that will look different in in different times. Last introductory thing about faith, and it is half of our time together this morning, so you will get out before one, all right? Last introductory thing. You, if you are a Christian, you have like precious faith, Peter says, with every other Christian who has ever been, and every Old Testament saint. When God works in the heart, He opens our eyes and He moves us and stirs us, and it's like for the first time the scripture seems to come alive and the sermon means something now, and those words carry weight. It, we, we grab hold of these truths with all we have. Faith. It's the same kind of faith that George Whitfield had or Amy Carmichael or Hudson Taylor or Paul or Peter or James or John. Peter says it in the first century to the Christians in Rome who are being persecuted, you have like precious faith. As who? As every believer that's gone before. Like Christ. It's not perfect. It's not sinless. It's not without its flaws. But your faith is the same kind as every other believer's. And that means Hebrews chapter 11 applies to us. And it's not just an interesting chapter on history. So let's turn there. And what I want us to see this morning from a few examples, we're only going to be able to hit uh, through the verses that I read. We're going to hit some of the high points of those. And I'll leave the rest of the chapter to you for later uh, for your own study. What I want us to see is if faith is an active thing, how does it act? If it responds to what God says, and therefore the response is appropriate based on what God has revealed, it might look different in different times, but what does that look like? How does faith act in the life of believing people? And the book of Hebrews gives us a selection, a series of examples of people who endured their entire life by believing that what God says is trustworthy, even if all they had was his word. And some of them died without having received the promise that they were looking for, but God kept his word to their children or their children's children. And all of these are given as examples so that like the Jews then today, you would press on as a believer and not turn back. So I want us to look at their examples, and let me say, two great activities of faith, or two great objects that faith has to deal with, all right? Faith kind of has dealings with two great general things. One is the grace of God. That is, we are constantly going to God as a believer, like we did the very first time, and we are receiving, 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 and He is giving and giving, and by faith's activity, you are taking. We're going to talk about that next week. The other aspect, the other thing that faith always has dealings with is duties. 
Not just graces, but duties. That is, God reveals something, and we realize, if, I'm going, if I believe what he says, then I'm going to have to change the way I live. And it may be a bit scary and costly. I might lose everything that I think makes me happy, but, but I will have God. I will walk with my God. And so, regarding duty... Faith must respond. So grace, duty. I receive, I respond in obedience. We're going to talk about the second one this morning. We'll go back next week and look at the first. So I want us to get it drilled in our heads. How does faith act when it's confronted by the realities of God, but it's in a world that is against God, and it may take an entire life of obedience to really live on what he says? And we'll look at some of these examples. At the beginning of chapter 11, you remember that it says faith is the assurance and it's the conviction. That is, faith is the, is the tool that God gives us by which we receive a constant assurance that what he says in this book is true. It's substantial. And it also is the evidence or the conviction, the New American Standard translates it, It brings with it, faith allows us to have a genuine conviction of the reality of things that I can't yet see, but they are real, but they're not right here. So because I trust God, I am assured and I have evidence that what is written in this book is trustworthy and the life of response follows. Well, let's look at a few examples And we're going to just hit the high points, as I said. Let's start with Abel. It says here, by faith, verse 4, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. Now, with each of these examples, very simple, all right? Nothing new. How did faith behave? How did it guide them to act? And how would that be applied today? Since you are not the son or daughter of Adam living right after they got kicked out of the garden with an angry brother going to church with Cain and Cain's mad and murders you in the parking lot. So what in the world does it have to do with today? Well, let's look at it. Abel and Cain are the sons of Adam and Eve. And they both bring sacrifices in the worship of God. They are both going to church. All right. Abel is a shepherd or he works with flocks. That's his livelihood. Cain is a farmer. When they come to God to worship him, they bring sacrifices. And they bring them from what they have at hand. Okay, Abel brings uh, from the flocks and Cain brings the first of his, of his harvest. In Genesis chapter 4, we have the account. Let me just read a couple of verses. It came about that in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. That is, from the farm. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he, God, had no regard. 
So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. We know that God warned Cain. Cain ignored the warning, and in his bitter hatred, he kills his brother. When they brought sacrifices, why was one received and one rejected? Now, I have read modern writers who say, well, it's because Abel's heart was right and Cain's heart was wrong. And certainly, our heart in worship is important. I mean, we know what God says. The Old Testament says it. The New Testament says it. Their mouths, Jesus says, they come close to me with their mouths. They're right there. But their hearts, they're far away, far from God. Hypocrisy is never pleasing to God. So is that the issue? Cain is not a hypocrite. I mean, Cain is a hypocrite. Abel's not a hypocrite. Abel's sincere. Cain's a fake. Well, I think we have some hints in the chapter. And I do agree with the older writers who say that this has to do with the sacrifice they brought. And one was pleasing and one was rejected. Remember, this is a chapter about faith that is responding to who God is, to what he's revealed. Everyone in this chapter is doing that. So Abel is, I believe, there's good reason to understand that Abel is responding to who God is, to the spiritual realities, to what God has revealed. Now, the Old Testament does not explain to us everything that God explained about the sacrifice system from the time that sin entered in and Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and aware of their, of their shame before God. From that moment until the Levitical law was given through Moses, which Chuck is covering on Wednesday, where he explains exactly how to do the sacrifices. So for all those centuries, how do they know what to do? Well, they do know. It's clear from the scripture that in some measure, God has made clear that the sacrifice for sin is always the death of the sacrifice. And God is teaching even before the specificity of the Mosaic covenant there at Sinai, even before he gives the very specifics, it is clear that those who believe God know that there is a sin problem between them and a holy God. And they don't just come up and give them thanks offerings and say, hey God, great week, great crops, thanks again God, I'm going to go back to my life. But they come to God and as they draw near to the infinitely clean God, they feel that they're not clean. And the only way is to come through the pattern he gives there, the shadows, the types and figures and symbols of what Christ would be. They provide a lamb or a sacrifice that has to die. Sin is serious. Sin brings death. I believe that Cain and Abel, along with Adam and Eve and all those that follow, that we see sacrifices, we see Noah, we see Abraham, long before the Levitical law is written down, there is an awareness that sin must include the drawing near through the death of a sacrifice. God calls them to approach him. Cain comes the way he think is, thinks is best. I don't think he's rejected because crops cost less than sheep. I don't think he's even rejected because his heart. I think he's rejected because he is an unbeliever and not believing what God has obviously made clear to his people at this time. 
He thinks that crops are just as good as dead animals. And so he'll do worship the way he wants to do worship. Cain is a man who is a church member who comes to God the way he feels he would like to come to God, ignoring the sin problem. Cain is an arrogant man thinking that if I bring the first of my harvest, God will be pretty excited to get it. I mean, after all, I am showing up at church and I am bringing and I'm putting stuff in the offering plate. Surely God will be pleased and God is not pleased. Abel comes and he brings the sacrifice of an animal, not because he's a shepherd, but because of faith. It's by faith that Abel's life is a life that is responsive to what God wants. Abel comes the way God wants a man to come. Abel believes something about God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the provision of a coming Savior, the the picture of that in the death of the animal. It's a great place to start. You are here and you are either coming here like Cain or like Abel. Even a Christian, I think, at times we can act like a cane. You can forget, kind of say, well, I think this is, this is what I'll offer to God. And it's not what God is pleased with. But that's not how a Christian remains. That's not how we live. But I'm not asking, are you a Christian or not? I'm asking you this. Are you coming as Cain or as an Abel? Should we put a C over here and an A over here? And then we'll sing a hymn and you switch? The Cainites, the Abelites. How do you come as Cain? Here's how Cain would come to Christ Church, New Albany. He would come every Sunday. He would come thinking, well, I know I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm pretty good. And I'm, I bring something. I mean, I am given. I'm given, I'm, I'm given a lot to God. And I think God's pretty excited that I showed up this morning. I could have been in a lot of other places. I know Jesus is there and Jesus died on the cross and rose again and I know the gospel and I think that's wonderful but, but I have Jesus and I have something to add to Christ. So I think I'm good with God because Jesus plus. And your sacrifice will be rejected. Another way to be a Cain is not to believe in, in, in a way that looks the very opposite. You say, well, I come to church and I hear the good news about Christ and I know that that's for sinners, but you don't understand. My sins, the stain goes so deeply. I don't think that God could really offer me what I'm reading on these pages. And so even though Christ died and that's a big deal, my sin is a bigger deal and I don't think that God means this for me. So I'm going to show up at church and pay my dues to the Creator And I'm going to come with my family, but I am going to stay as far away from God spiritually as I can because he terrifies me. And I don't believe that the death of his son is for me, is enough. So always there's distance. That would be Cain-like. Unbelief when it comes to worship. Abel, come Feeling the reality of our sin. The fact that we have earned judgment. Believing what God says about this amazing provision through His Son. Embracing all of Christ. My prophet. My priest. Teacher. Peacemaker. 
and my king, I take all of him. And I hope in what he has done, even though this week I have sinned against God again. And if it were up to me, I would destroy me. But I cannot, I dare not add to the sin of this week another sin this morning of calling God a liar. So I come. And I press through an angry, accusing conscience. And I press through the memories of my shame. And I lay myself before my king. And I believe that the death of the Son of God is sufficient. Not just to wipe me clean and let me be before God in peace this morning. But to transform the way I live. So this isn't the pattern of my life. Abel, which are you? When you read the scripture... How do you come to worship? It's an act of faith or an act of unbelief. God knows. A second example, Enoch. Enoch walks with God. We don't know much about the life of Enoch. It's Genesis chapter 5. Verse 5 of Hebrews 11 sums it up. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. What a wonderful second example. Faith isn't just by, isn't the thing by which we trust God and come near in a way that pleases him because we're grabbing hold of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. But faith also is this walk and Enoch walks with God. Enoch believes things that God has said about himself so much that he adjusts his life to what God says about himself and Enoch walks Pleasing to the Lord. Not sinless, but a real harmony between Enoch and his God. By the help of God, this Old Testament saint walks so close to God that toward the end of his life, God takes Enoch and he does not physically have to die. One old Puritan said that at the end of his life, Enoch changed places, earth to heaven, but did not change his company. Is there anything there for us? Do you believe the word of God? Does it produce daily an adjustment of your thoughts and desires and choices so that you are constantly adjusting to stay close to God, to walk in harmony with God? And the result is, That someone could look at you and say, that person walks with God. Not that person's a church member. Or that person knows a lot. Or that person's a preacher. But that person walks with God. I remember speaking to Richard on Roberts not many months ago. And he told me about an old man. I don't know who Mr. Roberts would call old. Because he is ancient. But this was an older man. So I think it was about 20 years ago. And Roberts is in his 90s now. So he said, there was an older gentleman in the Texas Baptist Men's Convention. And these group of men that, that did, um, you know, deeds of Christian service around the world, really, quite amazing. He said, the leader of those men at that time was an extraordinary believer. He said he was the kind of man that walked so close to God that you just wanted to be close to him. Because of the benefit. Because he was so close to God. There are people like that in our lives. 
Christian, you can think of people that way. Maybe they're not here anymore, and it's your turn to be that person. How do you walk with God? I open the Bible. I see the provision. I see the path. And I constantly adjust my feet to the path. This is what pleases the Lord. John chapter 15. We abide in the vine. We can't do anything of any value without abiding in the vine. But by abiding in Christ, that life of Christ flowing to the believer. Then in verse 9, 10, and 11, Christ says some wonderful things. He says that they are to abide in his love. The love that the father loved him with, he loves the believer with. The same love. You, you are to abide in my love. It's a command. Live in the reality of my love. How? If you obey me as I obeyed my father, you will abide in my love as I obeyed my father and I was abiding in his love. We walk in harmony with our God. It doesn't keep us loved, but it keeps us in that constant enjoyment of that love. Enoch, by faith, I don't know how much he knew about God, not as much as you know, but he lived on it, and his entire life was described with that simple phrase. Noah, quickly, chapter 11, verse 7, we know the account, God is displeased with the sin of humanity, he speaks to one man, Noah, tells him, that he is going to judge the entire earth. He is going to destroy all life on the earth. And Noah is the only man that is given the warning. And for the next, now there's different ideas of how long it took to build the ark. Some people, because of a, a phrase in Genesis, they think it was 120 years or 100 years. But that's not necessarily how long he built the ark. Others have said it's between 20 and 40 years looking at the birth of the children and when the ark was started and stopped. So let's say 40 years. Noah, for those decades, believes this voice from God that said, I will destroy the world. I will drown it. As far as we know, they've never seen a flood or rain. He builds an ark. He builds it to the exact specifications that God gives him. And it's decade after decade after decade after decade that he devotes his life to this. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter that while he's doing this, he's going around and he's a preacher of righteousness. He's talking to his neighbors. He's talking to the people in the city. He, I don't know how far his voice reached, but he's warning humanity. There is a judgment coming and we don't know of one person outside his family that paid any attention. After those years... The ark is complete. The family goes in. God closes the door. The rains come. And God does exactly what he promised to do. He judges this world. I am amazed that Noah works decade after decade on the specific plans of this big wooden floating box when there is no physical reason to believe that a flood is coming. Wouldn't you have doubted the voice? How many years before you quit spending all your money and time working on a boat? How many years would it have to be before you think, because God didn't say, no, it'll be 20 or 40 or 100, but just build it. And how do you know when the deadline is? 
But believing what God says, Noah endures in simple obedience and he is rescued. What about you? You have so much more information about what's coming than Noah had about a flood. You know of the coming of Christ to receive his glory when at the end of time all creation is called before him. You know that he is the one that has been chosen to judge. You know that there is an everlasting judgment coming. You know that there is everlasting life. You know all these things. You know so much detail. Do you spend the decades of your life living in light of eternity? And telling others. Let me give you one last example. Abraham and his family. Verse 8 and following. God meets a man named Abram. Later we call him Abraham. God changes his name. Abraham is not a believer when God meets him. Abraham is the son of a family that worships idols. In a town that worships idols. In a world that worships idols. There's no Jewish people yet. Abraham will be the beginning of that. So there's no special chosen earthly group. Abraham doesn't know about the real God. God meets Abraham. God reveals himself to Abraham. God calls Abraham to turn his back on family and friends and possessions and comfort and security and to take his immediate family and follow God wherever God leads him. And God would be his shield and God would be his treasure. And God promised that he would be given a son. And through the son, a great nation would come. And this great nation would be innumerable. And through the nation, we know later that the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, a Jew, would bring blessing to every country in the world. All these promises. And Abraham turns his back on idols, embraces God, leaves home, leaves comfort, and follows. Year after year, Abraham risks everything. Abraham lives, and then his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob, and his great grandson Joseph. Year after year, generation after generation, Abraham and his offspring live like aliens, strangers, in the land that God has already promised to them but not yet given. And they're not to fight for it, and they're not to take it and say, it's mine, so I get to have it now. They trust God with the timing, and they live their entire lives, generation after generation, willfully going without things that people who get to stop and plant, set down and get established and plant roots somewhere get to have. They don't get homes. They don't get to raise their kids in a little town. They don't build a little church there. You know, they just keep traveling. They live in tents, tents, generation after generation, tents. And we know that they did that. The writer of Hebrews says, and they did it happily because they were looking for a city that God was preparing something infinitely better than an earthly town. So Abraham lives that way. Isaac lives that way. He blesses his sons according to the promises of God. And he doesn't reverse it even when he finds out that Jacob tricked him because he knows that God is behind all of this and God will keep his word. And then Jacob, was, when he's an old man, do you remember that his son, Joseph, 
sorry, Isaac, then Jacob, then Jacob is an old man. Joseph has been sold into slavery to Egypt. Now he's the second in charge, the second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. His brothers go there during a famine. They, he reveals himself to his brothers. You know the account. He says, go get my dad. Jacob is brought there to Egypt. Jacob sees his son Joseph and, when, and he lives there, you know, provided for by Joseph. As an old man, he sits up one day and he leans over on his staff and he makes Joseph make a promise to him. You have got to. When God brings us into the promised land, our people, whenever it is, you dig up my body, you take it with you. Do not leave me in Egypt. Take me to the promised land. He will keep his word. And he died in Egypt, not in the promised land. Joseph second in charge, when he is old and he is ready to die, he speaks to his sons and he gives this prophetic statement and he makes them agree to a command like his father's, when I die, and then God later, whenever he does, takes us out of Egypt, you take my bones with you. You bury me in the promised land. Any application for us? Are you so in the grip of what God has said is everlastingly real? And the things that are like, you know, the pearl of great price in the field. The things that are worth selling everything temporary to have the eternal. Even now to have the taste of it. Are you so convinced of that? That you gladly lay aside many of the things that the world thinks are essential for security or for happiness? And you live in a way that just doesn't really fit with the culture. And what the world provides is not what you treasure. Or I have a friend that says you keep your tent pegs shallow. You know, you don't really put down roots. I belong to him and the eternal kingdom and the unshakable kingdom. And that's what's got my attention. It reminds me of a poem by the German preacher Gerhard Terstegen. Let him, let God lead thee, blindfold onwards. Lovely, love needs not to know. Children whom the Father leadeth, ask not where they go. Though the path be all unknown, over moors and mountains lone. What if God leads you? And in following what he says in scripture and obeying God, it feels like you're a stranger and you never really get settled it's almost like sometimes you feel blindfolded and God's making all the decisions. It's okay because we know him. Are your children and grandchildren, and if you live long enough, will your great-grandchildren see the realities of the promises in Scripture that have not yet been fully enjoyed, but can they see those realities in you in the way that you live? We're grateful for this world and the things we have, but that is not the treasure. And we hope and wait and speak to our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids about the coming of Christ and how that is so infinitely better. Well, I've only been able to give you a few examples, and we've already gone over time, so let me just conclude it with this. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to live by faith. That is responding to what God has written. Not just receiving grace, but the duties. Now, would you be happy in our James study? 
So I have to talk to the men tonight. I'm talking to you about tonight. I'm not speaking tonight. Would you be happy to stand up in the James study and say, I don't believe any of it. I think that a demonic dead faith is plenty good for God. If we say we believe and nothing changes, fine with me. I think that that's, that's the right way to read this text. I heard some preacher on the internet. He said that's what the Greek word means. I mean, I've, I've heard that. So, not here. I've heard that. Would you be happy? Who's teaching tonight? Chris Green. What if Chris Green is actually a, a secret demonic faith believer? And he gets up and says, if you believe as much as a demon, that's all you need. If you want to go further, that's fine. Not required. Wouldn't you be upset that Chris said that? Wouldn't you go to the elders and say, why did you tell, put Chris? Didn't you know he's going to say that? You know, our email boxes would be full. I think all of us would be glad to argue that faith has to be more than demonic faith. It has to produce changes. It doesn't earn God's love. But if we believe him, the proof of that is the change. But I can wake up tomorrow morning after tonight's study. And I can argue with people that demonic faith is not enough. And win the argument. And wake up tomorrow morning and live with nothing more than demonic faith. In other words, nothing changed. And I'm not living on what God is saying. I'm not spiritually minded. I'm just living on emotions and impulse and what the culture says and how I saw my parents live. And it's not the word of God that I'm responding to. And I'm, I've got all the right words in my head and I have no faith. Not the kind Hebrews 11 talks about. What a privilege for the believer that all these doctrines don't have to stay up in your head, isolated from life, kind of like plastic, beautiful things, or maybe things that you put on the top shelf that are valuable and you don't want the grandkids to grab, you know. So you put these nice things up there, but you never use them because they're too expensive, like fine china. And you say, well, that's my Christian faith. How happy I am that we get to pull them down and live with them. And walk with God. Well may the Lord help us. For his own glory.